Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Laura Shaver. Laura is the CEO of San Diego-based Synthorx. This company, based on research from the Scripps Research Institute, is using a couple of newly invented base pairs of DNA to make site-specific modifications on fully expressed proteins. This capability, Synthorx believes, could be put to practical use to craft ideal drug-like properties into recombinant proteins. The drug itself, in this case, will be a protein that doesn't exist in nature. It has an unnatural amino acid that serves as a hook for pegylation molecules that can attach to it, which improve the half-life and dosing schedules and therapeutic properties of interleukin-2. Pretty cool, huh? Science nerds, I probably had you there with the part about new base pairs of DNA. But for the more medically minded, this new application is a biggie. Synthorx has this newly modified version of interleukin-2, the inflammatory cytokine. It's been around for a couple of decades. It's known to cure a small percentage of patients with metastatic melanoma, but also to cause massive toxic side effects. Synthorx, along with a few others, including San Francisco-based Nectar Therapeutics, have been working on re-engineered versions of IL-2 that seek to exploit new understanding of the way the drug works biologically in order to dial up the immune system's ability to attack tumors while dialing down the toxic side effects. If this works, it could open up a world of possibilities for IL-2 to be combined more safely with other cancer immunotherapy drugs that have complementary ways of working. But first things first, Synthorx has to get its first clinical trial up and running in the coming months and gather the first glimmers of data to test its hypothesis. It has a long road ahead. Laura knows the drill. She's a veteran entrepreneur who has been through a few up and down cycles. She's a native of Davenport, Iowa, got her scientific training at the University of Iowa, and has been part of West Coast biotech teams at Sugen, now part of Pfizer, Phenomics, Cleve Biosciences, and now Synthorx. Along the way, Laura was diagnosed with ovarian cancer herself. She not only beat that scary diagnosis, but she founded a nonprofit foundation, the Clarity Foundation, that leveraged her biotech know-how and her network to help other women. I found that part pretty inspiring. Now, before we start the episode, a couple quick things. Do you enjoy this podcast? Your organization can support it through a sponsorship. There aren't many places where you can see an audience of 3,000 or 4,000 biotech leaders tuning in every other week for an immersive, in-depth conversation. Interested in raising your profile with this high-powered group of listeners? Email me at luke at timmermanreport.com. The other thing you can do to invest in quality journalism is to purchase a subscription to Timmerman Report. It's $149 a year for an individual subscriber. That gets you two to three articles a week on average. Companies and universities with multiple readers can purchase a group sharing license. And when you do that, 
you'll be able to read my writing, plus in-depth reports from savvy contributing writers like Stacey Lawrence, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, Leora Schiff, Kyle Sarakawa, and more. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to get yours today. Now, please join me and Laura Shaver on the long run. Here I am in San Diego at Synthorks with uh, CEO Laura Shaver. Laura, welcome to the long run. Thanks, Luke. Uh, great to talk to you today. Well, I'm very excited to be here and talk with you, Laura, because um, you wear so many hats. Uh, you're you're a scientist, you're a biotech entrepreneur, cancer survivor, uh, nonprofit founder, whirlwind dedicated <laughs> to good scientific causes. I mean, and this is, as you know, something that's personal to me as I've sort of branched into this area the last couple years. So uh, I think your ex- set of experiences are going to resonate with um, a lot of people in this uh uh, in the biotech community, so great. thank you. Yeah, great. Happy, happy to share my experiences, and uh, feel grateful that I'm able to do that. And later in the show, of course, we will get to Synthorx, the company that uh, brings me here today, uh, which I think of as an uh, early stage, high science, uh, newly public company. It's interesting for all of those reasons and more, and, and we'll get to that too. Great. Okay, so uh, for starters. Where where does your story begin? Uh, oh. Where were you born and raised? Right. So I was born and raised in Iowa, in Davenport, Iowa. And, uh, you know, my um, I think my scientific curiosity probably started pretty early, um, you know, with my dad uh, being fairly entrepreneurial uh, himself. And, uh, you know, my dad uh, actually had a... Uh, a power uh, power equipment business. So what that meant is that he sold and serviced lawnmowers for a living. Uh-huh. Uh, but he did invent the first uh, riding lawnmower called the Auto Pack way back before there was any riding lawnmowers. And I got to experience that. And he got to build things and he created things. And uh, you know, as a kid, I we were always experiencing that. And Dav- his, Davenport, Iowa. This is Davenport, the quad, quad cities of quad, Iowa, Illinois, the, whole, the home of John Deere. That's right. And, and the home of Innis Company, which was my grandfather's business. And the Innis Company invented the bean thrasher. So think about it, you know, um, that... Uh, the beans used to, soybeans used to have to be picked by hand. And then along came the Innis Company and invented a machine that could go down the rows of, of soybeans and uh, pick the beans and no longer had to be uh, picked by hand. So, uh, yes, and of course, uh, my PhD is in pharmacology, but being from Iowa, everybody thought that was farm ecology. <laughs> <laughs> Farming being the number one industry. Exactly. Yes, yes. Okay, so, uh, but first of all, like, uh, you got deep Midwestern roots, but I don't really hear that in the voice. You sound like almost a little East Coast. Am I, I, mis- am I hearing that correct? People, people tell me that all the time, that I sound like, like I'm from Boston or something. I have no idea where that came from. Okay, <laughs> okay. I think I would have that Midwestern, a solid Midwestern twang, so don't know where that, what happened. I've lived... Uh, in Iowa, I've lived in Virginia, I've lived in St. Louis, I've lived in San Francisco, San Diego, spent a little time in Nashville. Um, so 
who knows, it's probably a conglomeration of all the places I've been. I've been around a lot of places. Okay, so uh, growing up in Davenport, you, uh, you have a family that's business-oriented and somewhat inventive. Uh, Do you have any siblings? I do. I have an older sister and a younger brother and a younger sister, four of us. Okay, okay. And where did you fit in in this brood? Yeah, I'm uh, second. Uh, uh, I was born second and uh, probably have that typical, you know, middle child personality. Uh Uh-huh. And what's that? You had to prove yourself? or <laughs> I think so, yes. Always uh, always, yeah, trying to prove myself, uh, prove oneself. Pretty competitive, you know, always been competitive. Um, uh, maybe trying to outdo my siblings, I don't know. Okay. But um, how did you get the bug for science? Mm. So, well, my father uh, always helped us with our science fair projects. And uh, so that was, we had the coolest science fair projects starting in elementary school, just because he was inventive and he loved to help us with those. And, uh, and so early on, I had that exposure. But interestingly enough, as time passed, and I became interested in music, and I played the drums and the string bass, uh, you know, I thought that there was a time where I might major in music. And my mom was a nurse, and my aunt was a nurse. And so as I thought about what did I want to do, I thought, oh, you know, I could be a nurse. Maybe I could uh, major in music. And interestingly enough, you know, in my sophomore year of high school, my chemistry teacher was a woman, and she also taught AP chemistry, and she was trying to get me geared up in my sophomore year taking chemistry to take AP chemistry as a senior. So she stops me in the hall one day, and she said, Laura, what are you going to do when you go to college? And I said, well, I'm thinking about music, maybe I'll major in music, but you know, my mom's a nurse. My aunt's a nurse. I might be a nurse. And she said, well, why do you want to be a nurse when you can be a doctor? And uh, that was then that first kind of light bulb that went off that said, oh, maybe I should think differently about this. And in fact, when um, I uh, went to college at the University of Iowa, of course, being a good uh, Midwestern Hawkeye uh, I, I signed up as, pre, as pre-med, probably because of that conversation. That's so important. That's, it, that's leadership. And, that's, that's seeing greater ability in someone and urging them to set, it, a, set a bolder goal. Right. And if you think about that, that was the early 70s, of course. And, you know, I graduated in 75. And so for somebody to plant that seed... You know, it was different back then. It's 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 changed now, thank goodness. But uh, yes, and I feel lucky that I had uh, Mary Sievert was her name. I feel lucky that I had her as a mentor back then. You didn't see many high school science teachers being women, let alone AP, let alone stopping someone in the hall and saying, "Hey, what do you want to do uh, when you go to college?" and having a big influence on on that. It increased. And she certainly did on me. 
increased your confidence, it yes. sounds like. Yes, it did increase my confidence, yeah. So you go to the great University of Iowa, state school, mom and dad must be proud, uh, and you decide pre-med? I decide pre-med, and you know, I had another uh, moment in my freshman year where I, well, I was signed up to be pre-med and um, had a first-year advisor by the name of Jack Kazin, and he was a professor in the microbiology department. And I was to see him in my first year, which I did not do until the second semester. And I don't know how it happened that somebody reminded me I was supposed to see my freshman advisor. And so I remember calling up the administrative assistant, then called a secretary, right, uh, and said, I need to schedule an appointment with Mr. Kazin. He's a professor in microbiology. I called him Mr. Mr. Kazin. <laughs> and she said, you, Dr. Kazin, you know, and, and was very indignant about that. And I thought, I thought, oh, I had made this, you know, terrible mistake. And then I realized, you know, he was a PhD. He was to be called a doctor as well. And so, even though I, he didn't see patients, and it, well, <laughs> I had to find that out. And and in in fact, uh, when I went to see him, you know, there was this vision of a man sitting in an office. I had to walk through a lab, you know, to get to an office. The man sitting there with a white lab coat on, and he had slicked back black hair and half glasses. And I was scared to death, you know, and I, I go into his office, I knock on the door, you know, he peers over his glasses, you know, says, come on in. And he's got my high school transcripts in his hands. He's looking down at them, and then he looks up at me, he looks down at them, he looks up at me, he goes, why do you want to be a doctor? Why are you pre-med? And I said, because I want to do research. And he said, well, why do you want to be a doctor? And I said, because I want to do research. And he goes, well, you don't go to medical school to to do research. And I said, I don't. He goes, no, you get your PhD if you want to do research. You get your MD if you want to take care of patients. And I said, that's not what I want to do. I want to do research. He goes, you need to have a proper major. And it needs to not be pre-med. You need to pick a science major um, and become very knowledgeable in that and then decide what you want to do for graduate school. Another influencer in my career. So you walked out of there and thought, okay, I need to reassess. I walked out of there and declared a major. And it was microbiology. It was microbiology because he was a microbiologist. I thought... I'll be a microbiologist too. Uh huh. <laughs> Which in uh, those days, I mean, it was kind of it was broader. It was more of a catch-all. Like immunology was filed in there under it microbiology. Was immunology, immunology yeah. was filed into there. Uh, bacteriology, mycology, the study of fungi, uh, which I took a very interesting class in the study of, of fungi and study of E. coli. Interestingly, of course, that's what we do here at Synthorix now. It's a manufacturing tool, but um, uh, I, I chose um, microbiology and then also um, had to find a way to work in a laboratory because, wow, if I was going to get into to graduate school and do research, 
I better start fi- figuring out how to do that. Oh, so you were very focused, even as an undergraduate, to, as to, a, to, to get your hands dirty on in the lab. and Exactly, yeah. Huh. And I uh, went around and um, talked to people. We, I, uh, the, the science building was called the Basic Science Building at that time. I think now it's called the Bowen Science Building. And uh, went around and talked to professors to see if any of them had a job for me. One of them did. Bill Steele is his name. And he said, I could have a job washing glassware in his lab. <laughs> Got to start somewhere. He said, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> and back then, you know, there was a lot of work with uh, radioactivity and uh, S35 and tritium. And I didn't work with P32 until my postdoc. But, uh, you know, you had these scintillation vials and you would count them in a scintillation counter. And uh, in order to save money, uh, we had to dump out the, the, the scintillation vials into radioactive waste and then wash those vials. That was my job. Of, amongst other glassware washing, and uh-huh. but that was my that was my toehold toe into that world, and uh, I saw things happening around me, and I after I got done washing glassware, I would go around to some of the research associates, and I would ask if I could watch. Okay, so you're taking in a variety of classes filed under microbiology, which we can now say in retrospect, I mean, that was a pretty good broad-based education. Uh, You're also getting to know the the ways of the lab, like how it works, the daily rhythms and all that. Uh, Were you really, like, goal-directed all along and, like, on a path, or did you have moments of doubt where you thought, I don't know if I want to do this? I had a typical college experience. You know, I... I love my undergraduate experience. Uh, I was in a sorority, Alpha Chi Omega. I played a lot of sports. I tried my hand at uh, basketball my freshman year, but I quickly realized, oh, and I also played in the symphony my freshman year, and I quickly realized that unlike high school where you can do a lot of different things, wow, you cannot do a lot of things well in college. You have to really focus. Well, this is the Big Ten. I mean, this is a lot of of smart kids from all over (laughs) Iowa and the whole country. Right. So, and and also, uh, you know, playing uh, collegiate uh, basketball for my freshman year, that was, um, it was a different world back then, right? And uh, there, there were no perks offered to us. We had to take our all of our coursework, schlep over, practice basketball. You know, my uh, I had a inorganic chemistry that year, which of course is uh, the flunk out course, and also and that also had not only a lecture but labs. And you know, uh, I needed to miss a test or something to go play a basketball game. That wasn't going to happen for that professor. You know, now if it was men's basketball, probably would have been excused. But I just had to miss that game. You also don't get the prime practice time at the gym. Oh like no, the men no, do. no, no, we don't. <laughs> this was either pre-title nine or very early. But I, uh, no, it was pre. Oh gosh, I don't re- even remember. Seventy-five, seventy-six. Yeah. So might have been right. Uh, I think it might have been pre-title nine, and. Uh, 
in any case, I only played uh, club side sports after the first year, but I always had a blast doing that, be at flag football or whatever we were doing at the time. Okay, so you go to graduate school, and where, where did you do that? University of Iowa. Oh, so that, <laughs> no, that's kind of unusual. How did, how did that happen? It was just there and familiar, and you got a recommendation? Uh, the, or? The, that's, that's right. I got a recommendation from the guy who uh, um, hired me to wash dishes in his lab. And, of course, over my undergraduate time, I went from washing dishes to doing experiments, and he gave me a recommendation. And I didn't have an appreciation back then for how it might help me if I broadened my scope in terms of the schools I went to. I had no idea when I applied for undergraduate that, that you know, other than the University of Iowa, uh, you know, which, would, which I thought was just a fine place to go, I should be looking elsewhere. Um, because my, my dad told me I could go to any school I wanted to as long as it was one of the three state schools. So I didn't even think. <laughs> <laughs> now I understand, you know, how the probability that you can be successful, you know, post your education increases with the school that you might choose. But um, I, um, I, I loved University of Iowa and I was happy to stay there. Uh, to do my graduate work. Now, this would have been late 70s, so biotech is now becoming a thing. Uh, I don't know if, uh, did that, when did that register for you that uh, something's going on here? Th- this field is getting more interesting. Yes, so I finished uh, my PhD in 1984. Okay. And uh, at that time, it was just natural to look for a postdoctoral fellowship. And what was happening at that time, so I'm a classically trained pharmacologist. So that's drug metabolism, toxicology. But in the early 80s, cloning was the sexy thing. Yeah, this is like PKPD of, you know, all your small molecules. That was your bag. (laughs) That was my bag, which has served me well later. But at that time, I said, I heard about this cloning thing and I wanted to do it. Of course, now any high school student can clone, right? But back then, it was a big deal. It was new. It was an emerging field. And I said I was going to do a a postdoc with the first lab that would let me clone something, and I didn't care what it was. And I landed in the field of oncogenes, growth factors, and signal transduction pathways and have mostly been there um, through my career since. Uh, And... uh, I did a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville uh, with Mike Weber. Then I did a second postdoctoral fellowship uh, with Tom Duell at Washington University in St. Louis. So I really retrained myself as a cell and molecular biologist during that time when cell and molecular biology was uh, was important. uh, uh, and an emerging field. Well, oncogenes, growth factors, this all was bursting open, the RAS and MYC and P53 exactly. and all this kind of stuff. And it's amazing how back then in the early 80s, you know, we were 
uh, targeting RAS as, wow, that's really an, in, an oncogenic driver. We should try to drug that. And now we're here uh, 30 years later, and finally it's, it's happening. <laughs> it's a testament to you got to be in this for the long run. you got to be in it for the long run, <laughs> yes. And then biotech, it just kind of popped into my world. It wasn't something that I planned. And so I uh, was thought, okay, I've done two postdocs, it's time to find a job. And I was, you know, back then looking for jobs, you answered the ad in the back of science and sell, right? You, there, there was nothing online. And so you looked every week and you looked for advertisements and you had all of your publications together and you would craft a cover letter based on what that ad said and you would put it in the mail and send it away. Yeah. And so I was looking at assistant professor jobs and came very close to taking an assistant professor job at the University of Kansas, back to my Midwest roots. But one day I, you know, opened uh, science and there was an ad for somebody with experience in oncogenous growth factors and signal transduction pathways. I thought, oh, that's me. And it was for a company called Triton Biosciences in Alameda, California. You're like, who's that? I'm sad. Like, who's that? And where's Alameda? I had to look it up on a map. <laughs> and I uh, was like, wow, Triton Biosciences. Well, I don't want I don't want to work for a company. And I don't know about California, but oncogenes, growth factors, signal transduction pathways, that's me. And of course, so I put a, a cover letter to my papers. I put it in the mail, sent it away, forgot about it, right? Um, was talking to the University of Kansas and um, and some other jobs as, as well. But got a phone call in the lab one day from uh, John Brandis, who would become my manager at my first manager in, in biotech. And he gave me a phone interview. And uh, he said, thank you very much. And he hung up the phone. I said, well, that's that. And then the phone rang a little bit later, and it was somebody from HR inviting me out to give an interview and a seminar. I thought, oh, wow, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go out there. I don't know if I want to work there. I don't know if I want to live in California, but uh, it sounds like me. But giving a seminar, that, that's like an academic kind of thing. Sure, that's right? got to be fun. <laughs> Talk about your oncogene research. Right, exactly. And so I went to that interview, and I was struck by two things uh, during that interview. I was struck by how young everybody was in the company. You know, biotech back then was young. We still get to work with young people today, right? Uh -huh. But. Um, and I was struck by how many women scientists there were, which was shocking to me because University of Iowa, there was one woman professor in our department, University of Virginia, one woman uh, professor in the department I was in um, as a postdoc, University of Kansas, I would have been the only woman professor or assistant professor. And uh, so I was... I was struck, and I, I have to say, I was, I was bitten by that biotech bug. And uh, I had advice, of course, um, from many people not to go uh, into industry, not to go into biotech. But I reasoned with myself. I said to myself, "Well, I'm going to try it for six months." And what was it about that uh, seminar, that interview? Did they pepper you with a lot of questions, and you thought, "Wow, these are..." 
smart people? Or, uh, they did. They did pepper me. I think also because I didn't really care if I got the job. I was very relaxed, right? And uh-huh. so that made for very good back and forth dialogue. Now that was a long time ago, so I don't really remember the details. But I remember the number of women scientists that there were, and the the, the women in management. And I remember how young everybody was, um, and that struck me. And so, you know, I said, I'm going to try it for six months, and if I don't like it, then it's probably not too late to go back to academia. But I knew in six days I would never go back. I mean, that's how fast um, I realized that I loved biotech, and of course I still do to this day. So what year was this? You, you made This the was 1989, so 30 years ago. Okay. And so you're there at Triton. Um, how long were you there? I was there for three years. I was there for a year. So Triton was owned by Shell Oil Company. <laughs> and, and yeah, Shell had hired a bunch of consultants back in the early 80s to help them figure out what the next hot thing would be. And consultants said biotech. And they created Triton. And Triton was working on... Uh, kinases and you know oncogenes and growth factors and signal transduction pathways before um, many other companies were. They also um, uh, developed beta seron. So beta seron was one of the first you know MS drugs that yeah. came out of biotech. It was Berlex and now and then it's Shearing and now it's KGA or something like that. Well, <laughs> now I think it's Bayer, but it was it was. Um, uh, Triton and then was acquired by Sharing AG, became part of Berlex, and then Bayer acquired them. And I was long gone by then. But, uh, but the interferon betas, that was that early beta, class of MS? Beta interferon and fludarabine. And uh, we, we were working on, on, on kinases and kinase inhibitors. And uh, that's what I had done in my postdoctoral fellowships. And I loved that. Uh, and once uh, you know we were acquired by Sharing AG, uh, then the part of the company that was working on kinases was quite small, and that's when I got a call one day, actually from Dennis Slayman, who was on Triton's scientific advisory board, saying Axel Ulrich was starting another a new company, you know, and um, now Dennis was at UCLA, and Axel was still at Genentech then. Uh, he or had w- he moved? He had moved to the Max Planck. Okay. By then, yes, and he was starting. He yes, he had finished up at Genentech, and you know was um, Dennis said Axel starting a new company, and you know I should talk with him. And uh, long story short, you know sometimes in our careers serendipitous things happen, and um, I actually was on a plane going to Berlin for a sharing uh, meeting and uh, the person across, I knew who Axel was, but I had never met him. Person sitting across the aisle from me, I was practicing German. I thought I'm gonna say it to the guy across the aisle from me. And then partway through the trip, I thought, okay, I'm really embarrassed. I've made a fool of myself practicing German. I should introduce myself. So I said, oh, hi, my name's Laura Schauver. And he goes, oh, my name's Axel Ulrich. <laughs> I said, oh, it's very nice to meet you. Of course, I'm familiar with your work. And uh, anyway, a few minutes later, he, he goes, what's your name again? And he says, I was supposed to have called you. So anyway, um, by the time I got back, um, 
Peter Hirth, uh, who was already at Sujin, then uh, had called me, and I went to see Peter, and of course I was at Sujin for 10 years, and starting from when they were very young and getting to grow up with that company. Now, Sujin was another Bay Area company, um, it, it, and at this point, were you had you moved into management, uh, or, or were... Or did Dennis sort of recognize you as ready to take that next step? Maybe you should talk with Axel, see where that goes. Yeah, I I think that's the other thing about biotech that is still true today, which is uh, if you raise your hand and uh, you know do what the company needs to have done and do it well, you can you can excel and you can be rewarded for that. So I pretty quickly at Triton moved into project manager, then became, uh, um, you know, became a director of uh, cell biology. And so at Sujin, I started off as director of preclinical development, even though when I went there, there was nothing in preclinical development, right? Because the main thesis for Sujin in the beginning, I mean, remember this was now uh, 92, uh, the main thesis was to identify all the kinases in the human genome and maybe figure out a little bit what they did. Um, and you know there were probably less than 20 known at that time. And uh, so there wasn't anything in preclinical development and a lot of my job was making dominant negatives to prove which tyrosine kinases had a role in cancer. And uh, we collaborated with Axel's lab um, demonstrating that the flick that uh, flick uh, fetal liver kinase uh, was the receptor for VEGF. You know, back before uh, uh, VEGF, uh, back, flick was an orphan receptor, and now it's called the VEGF receptor. Uh, and of course, we have small molecules and antibodies against the VEGF receptor. But back then, you know, we didn't know the ligand uh, uh, for that receptor. We didn't know what it, it did or its role in angiogenesis or oncology. Yeah, yeah. So this was uh, these were early days in kinase inhibition. Um, Sujen was one of the places. Uh, and you were there for 10 years, you say. Ended up as president. That's right. Uh, before uh, and, and now I know, the, you know, I came to this story a little later. So I know that there's Krizotinib, now Zalcori from Pfizer. I guess it was acquired by Pharmacia. Then it became part of Pfizer. That was that all came later, I think. So, right? yeah, Sujan was private. Then we were public. Then in 2000, we were acquired by Pharmacia and Upjohn. They merged with Monsanto Searle became Pharmacia. We were a sub of Pharmacia. Pfizer acquired Pharmacia, uh, um, but I left in 2002 before Pfizer acquired Pharmacia. Do you like listening to this podcast? You can show your support in two meaningful ways. One, you can sponsor the long run and reach three or 4,000 biotech leaders every other week in an immersive listening experience. And another simple alternative is just to subscribe to Timmerman Report. Go to timmermanreport.com slash subscribe. Interested in a group sharing license? Email me at luke at timmermanreport.com. 
now you're in senior management at that time, and it's like big man, big mergers happen. It's like time to go do something different, right? That's right. I mean, you know, looking back on it, you know, when I was president of Sujin and we we were a sub of Pharmacia, I mean, my budget was 125 million dollars a year, and all I had to do was get out of bed every morning, right? Um, <laughs> they they uh, they were selling drugs, and we were trying to create the next generation of drugs and. Uh, I didn't really, um, uh, I, I wasn't part of fundraising of Sujin in those early days uh, when the company was private and then public. Uh, so that part of it, I mean, we had a big company to manage. By then, Sujin was 200 people, and we had a number of drugs and clinical trials. Uh, but yes, I, I felt uh, it's time to go back and try something more entrepreneurial. That's yeah. when I moved to San Diego. So you came to San Diego. Now, that would have been phenomics, right? That would have been phenomics in 2002, yeah. What was, uh, okay, so how did you decide to become a biotech entrepreneur? Oh, well, um, I think like many other aspects of my career, somebody asked and I said yes. You know, and um, I think there's nothing, I think much of my career, unlike others, was very unplanned. Um, I love being a scientist. I always loved being a scientist. Never thought about getting out of the lab. Never thought about management. It just happened. And, you know, which is why every company that I'm at has to have a lab close by so I can still walk in and pretend, <laughs> even though nobody wants me in a lab anymore. But <laughs> Hey, what are you working on? Yeah, yeah exactly. it's good, good for you yeah. and for them too. Right. Hey, let me run that machine. Uh, no. So, um, yeah, I, uh, you know, got an opportunity and I said yes because of what I thought was really great science. And this phenomics was founded, you know, on forward genetics, and we're here now. It was a new way to identify targets where you start with a phenotype and then you parachute into the causative driver of disease by positional cloning. And it's funny because, you know, in uh, 2002, when I started at Phenomics, I was in this very building. And downstairs, and the 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 rate at which things change, you know, the, the the whole concept of positional cloning, it took a long time, and and probably was part of the reason that Phenomics switched from a platform technology to developing diabe- a diabetes drug. But now the positional cloning. I think Bruce Boitler does it in like six days, you know, and so it's just very different as how it shows you how uh, how science changes so rapidly and quickly. Well, the speed and the automation of so many tools oh, has yeah. just completely changed the lab. It's mind blowing. It, it, it really is. Yeah. OK, so I don't uh no, I think phenomics. That would have been when when I first crossed paths with you here in San Diego, when I was getting Xconomy going down here, and, and you uh, were were wrapping that one up. Um, and so, but when did you get your diagnosis? Yeah, while I was at Phenomics, actually in two thousand and six, and I think most people know that. You know, I love to surf, still do. Went out this morning, um, although I don't surf as much as I used to because 
uh, Synthorix, well, I'm riding a pretty big wave here, so um, <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time here. Uh, but um, I was out surfing, it was August, and uh, I felt pressure on my in, in my lower abdomen up against my surfboard as I was paddling out. I said, oh, you know, I better, August, yeah, I better get a pap and pelvic because once September hits, I'm not going to have any time. Um, and, you know, went in because of feeling that pressure laying on my surfboard and, yeah, boom, got an ovarian cancer diagnosis out of that. Wow, that must have been um, a, a big blow. Yeah, it, it's a big shock. Uh, you know, it was, we were just getting ready to raise a Series C uh, at Phenomics, and, you know, your your whole world changes from, you know, literally from one minute to the next. And um, I was, you know, reading my report from my, uh, it was an ultrasound actually later confirmed by, you know, some other scanning or the CAT scan, but, you know, it just said uh, 14 by 7, you know, by 15.8 by 16.3 centimeter mass, likely ovarian cancer. And yep, my world changed right then and there. Now, this is one that's usually not caught until way late. We're, 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 I, you're here today. So were you, was it caught early? Yeah, it, it, so my, my tumor was grapefruit size. Oof. And you would think that that would be later stage because many people with pea-sized tumors have metastatic disease. Um, but mine was not metastatic. Uh, they had a little trouble uh, staging me because my tumor burst during surgery. So technically that meant that tumor cells spilled all in my peritoneal cavity. And I had a great surgeon and um, I'm probably here today because of him. Uh, but, uh, you know, that was that when that was a, a he, he told me that it burst during surgery. But the other thing that happened is, you know, um, medicine is imperfect, just like science is imperfect. And in the OR, in the operating room, they do a frozen section to look to see, you know, is this a benign or is it cancerous? And he treated it like it was cancer, even though the frozen section said it was benign. And so when I woke up in the recovery room, you know, uh, I woke up and kind of groggy said, oh, you know, do I have to have chemotherapy? And he said, I don't think so. It looks to be benign. And so I thought I had dodged a bullet. Mm -hmm. And uh, but a week later, when I got the full path report back, I learned that I had clear cell carcinoma, which is a rare ovarian cancer. Most is high grade serous. Um, this is clear cell. Clear cell is known to be chemorefractory. I was really in a conundrum as to what to do. And of course, I sent my slides to uh, two different pathologists to confirm that it was clear cell. And I sent my path report to six different oncologists, all my friends. And, you know, you bargain with yourself because I had a lot going on. I did not want to go through six cycles of you know, carboplatin and uh, paclitaxel. And so I just said, oh, you would agree with me, right? I don't have to have chemotherapy. And everybody came back and said, no, you, you have to have chemotherapy. So I did that. 
And as the leader of the company, you know, you got to put on a brave face. I mean, your board knows this, right? I but, had, you're, you know, you, you I, don't want people in the company to feel like you're, you're struggling. I have been so lucky throughout my career to have great teams and to be supported by great people. And um, Phenomics uh, was very special at that time and uh, rallying around me. And, you know, we we uh, raised that Series C. Uh, I had I, I recovered from, from surgery, but um, the board was also very supportive. And uh, we raised that Series C while I was going through chemotherapy. And I would sit in the infusion. I, I was up at, I was treated by at Cedar sinai because I knew that the likelihood of a recurrence uh, was high and that I would need a clinical trial. And I wanted to be at a teaching hospital where there were a lot of clinical trials. Uh, but I would sit in the infusion chair and, you know, I would talk on the phone or we, I did negotiate term sheets. Uh, <laughs> okay, the entrepreneurs, <laughs> the entrepreneurs in the audience are listening to this and thinking, it's hard enough to raise money when I'm healthy. And she did this when, when this is going on? You know, uh, <laughs> like I said, I have people that supported me and helped me. And it's not easy to go through chemotherapy. Um, I can't say it was fun. Um, and I really feel for everybody that has a cancer diagnosis that has to go Go, go through that and much more, much more than I went through. And, you know, it's very fatiguing. And uh, so, so over, over time, you know, I needed to rest throughout the day and I just built that in. So around this time, you're somewhere in like, what, your mid 40s? Um, you're running a company. Obviously, you got great scientific training. Yet by this point, you've built a, uh, a great biotech network. You had oncologists that you could call and run your pathology slides by for second and third opinions. Uh, when did the light bulb go on for you that I, I need to do something more with this and try to help other people with a diagnosis like this, creating Clarity yeah. Foundation? Yeah, so it goes back to um, the Sujin days when we were doing clinical trials and we would get samples from the patients and they could be tumor samples or they could be blood samples. Uh, we did hair samples. We did, we did skin punch biopsy. Now this was back in relatively speaking, you know, the very beginnings of molecular profiling and it's certainly not what it is today, but we were looking to see what changed in these patients pre and post treatment when there was an understanding about EGF receptor and PDGF receptor and you know we people were doing immunohistochemistry and so there was a level of molecular profiling that was going on and that was a reaction that I had when when I had my diagnosis which was oh I'm just going to have my tumor profiled you know by immunohistochemistry to see which kinases um, I uh, you know, I express, my tumors express as a way to think about what my treatment might be. Being a scientist, you're surely an annoying patient. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just ask my oncologist. <laughs> he has many a conversation about this. But I found out actually um, that, you know, Laura Schalver, the scientist, could profile other people's tumors, but Laura Schalver, the cancer patient, I couldn't get my own tumor profiled. Um, and uh, that was very frustrating to me. In fact, it pissed me off. And um, 
it really wasn't until I was done with my chemotherapy and had started recovering from that that the whole concept of recurrence crept in again for real because the statistics around ovarian cancer are horrible for the number of people that respond to carbotaxol and recur nevertheless. And uh, so it was front and center and a real thing. And it was at that time that uh, I decided to uh, found the Clarity Foundation. And it was to, if I couldn't get my own tumor profiled, how do I help other women in this situation get their tumor profiled uh, to improve their, their treatment choices? But you know, you're, you've got a day job. You're running a company. You're going to start a new nonprofit. You're going to raise money. You're going to do public outreach. This is ambitious. Well, again, I, I had help. You know, I asked my friends, some of them, if they would be on the board. I didn't have any idea what it it, it took to to do a nonprofit. You know, thankfully, I might not have done it had I known. But uh, you just you just do it. You go. You just um, you know. If you know what the steps are, you just go through through the steps. And again, um, you know, I had my some of my exugenites who who helped, and they introduced me to Tom Grogan. Now, Tom was the founder of Ventana, and Ventana was the company that made reagents for immunohistochemistry, and those that's the way we profiled back then. And you know, I went to see Tom. In, in Tucson, and he said, oh, Laura, I'll profile your tumor. I'll, I'll profile it in my lab, and then I'll write you a report, and then you can go around to, uh, to uh, commercial laboratories and show it to them and say, this is what you want done for other women. Mm-hmm. And he did that, and then I took that report, and I went around uh, to laboratories, and I said, this is what I'd like to do for women with ovarian cancer, and that's how that Part started along with all of the uh, administrative things that had to happen to get a nonprofit up and going. And ten years later, how many uh, women have gotten their molecular profiles? Oh gosh, you know we've uh, we've touched uh, thousands of families, and uh, not just in San Diego, but throughout the United States uh, by profiling, by helping people. Uh, get access to information by helping them get on clinical trials, uh, and uh, yet it's been a remarkable uh, journey uh, to see Clarity Foundation blossom into what it is today. And like any other uh, organization or business, if you hire the right people, they will take uh, what an entrepreneur has started and created beyond our wildest dreams. And that's what happened with Clarity Foundation is, yes, it was started by myself and some friends. And then as we found the right people, and Hillary Thiexen is the executive director, you know, they, and Deb Zykowski, who's the scientific director, and she and I worked together at Triton. Mm -hmm. And we used to, you know, we used to go back and forth on scientific debates. And I knew that if she could apply, you know, her smarts to ovarian cancer, and she's uh, been with Clarity for the entire time, and 
Uh, yeah, they've just taken it to, to beyond my wildest dreams. Well, that's another one of the, your, your uh, organizations where I guess you can walk around there and, you know, don't touch the machine, but, <laughs> but they're happy to see you and it's like, good for you too. That's and, right, yeah. yeah. They- <laughs> Um, okay, so um, fast forward now. Here we are at Synthorx. You're back here on Toy Prime's Mesa. You got a new company opportunity here. It's uh, this was just a few years ago. You hear about like what's going on with Floyd Roseberg's lab at Scripps. These like new letters in the DNA alphabet. I mean, this is like it's, pages of nature kind of stuff. Like, yeah, what can you do it's with crazy. new, new it's, base pairs? Yeah, it's like Jurassic Park, I guess. You know, in terms of uh, if you think about, you know, um, since the beginning of time as we know it, you know, DNA has been made up of four letters, A, T, C, and G, and we all learn in biology about the double helix of DNA and how it replicates and what's special about those letters and how those letters create codons that that code for the placement of amino acids in a polypeptide and that's what creates all the diversity uh, in our world, right? It's Four what, base pairs, 20 amino acids, uh, right? First exactly, <laughs> semester biology. Exactly. And, you know, it's what, you know, you and I have in common with, uh, with, with our pets, with a, with a banana or any plants, with a fish in the ocean, you know, with a microorganism. It's the DNA and those four letters of the DNA creating that diversity. Yet somehow, as we think about how to tune biologics that have been used as drugs, I mean, again, going back to the biotech roots of Genentech, you know, making human insulin in E. coli, you know, before then diabetics had to take insulin purified from horse or cow pancreas, and now all of a sudden they can get human insulin, you know, that as we think about biologics as drugs, there's limitations. And we can't overcome those limitations with the 20 natural amino acids. And so, yeah, Floyd uh, spent uh, many years of his career creating a new uh, base pair that can replicate in E. coli. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And you can fit it into that, uh, that whole chain of nucleotides to create a whole new kind of protein that does not exist in nature. It does not exist in nature. That's right. And then the yada wonder, like the imaginations start going like, well, what would you want to do with such a thing? Where do you start? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Now, had this, uh, had you already, had Synthorx already moved down the road of engineering IL-2 when you got here? Or was that something that you identified? No, they had uh, moved down that road of engineering cytokines and starting with IL-2 and, uh, you know, as as we think about it, I mean, given, you know, that I've been in this business for as long as I have, I remember Aldous Lucan and the clinical trials in the 80s, you know, and I remember people talking about it because the first thing they talk about was, oh my God, it is so toxic. It has people died in those clinical trials. And uh, the second thing, though, is that people that got cured who should have been dead in six months 
went to the FDA and advocated for the approval of aldosleucan in spite of those severe toxicities. I was just going to say, like, before the toxicity, like, there was all the hype and the hope that, you know, here was this thing that could provoke an anti-tumor immune response. And it, it looked incredibly powerful and promising. Like, wasn't Cover Time magazine and all that kind of stuff? Or maybe that was Interferon. But I, I, yeah, I think uh, that might have been a le- little later on. I okay. think um, in the 80s with Aldous Lucan, uh, certainly there was the promise of harnessing the immune system, but we, we weren't as sophisticated back then. Um, and the biology of T-cells wasn't even understood, right? Tregs hadn't been discovered. Um, the etiopathology of vascular leak syndrome, the the sometimes fatal toxicity of Aldous Lucan, was not understood in, until a few years ago. So, but what was amazing is that people with metastatic melanoma and renal cell cancer, which you know were refractory to chemotherapy, uh, were getting cured. That didn't happen. I mean, all of us who have been in drug development since the 80s, we were all about moving that Kaplan-Meier curve out for a few months, and we called that success, right? It was something like 10% would be cured, right, with advanced melanoma? There was... um, Enough promise there to say, boy, if we could figure out how to dial down the toxicity, we could really have something special. It was actually lower than that. There was about the 16% response rate, but of the people that got cured, it was more like 7%. But enough that uh, people uh, said, in spite of this potential for this toxicity, it should be my choice if I want to take this because there's nothing else. And um, yes, that started the era of immuno-oncology before we coined that term. Yeah, yeah. And so this drug was around, it was given in very limited situations for melanoma for years. Not a lot of innovation happening, I don't, uh, but, you know, then there were some, there was kind of like this second generation, and I know you have this in one of your slides, right, that Nectar, and there's a couple of others out there that thought, well, maybe if we can pegolate or if we can engineer. Well, Chiron did first, uh, because, uh-huh. you know, they, they, of course, the, you know, getting back to the Triton days, my first job, they had a you know, collaboration, uh, you know, with Cetus Chiron on Beta Ceron, and they first tried to pegylate IL-2 uh, randomly and, you know, didn't do a thing with the toxicities. But but people have been, as long as, um, you know, Aldous Lucan has been a- around, people have tried to engineer it, but we didn't know what we needed to change. The biology wasn't mature enough. It wasn't mature enough. We didn't know that, you know, IL-2 receptor comes in two flavors, you know, um, alpha, beta, gamma, three chains, and that's expressed on one uh, T-cell subtype, and beta, gamma only, and that's expressed on another T-cell subtype, and what, what do you want to keep versus what do you want to give up? All of that had to be figured out, and that was figured out by many groups that had been trying to engineer IL-2 before Synthorix got involved. And based on the binding, you could get a little more CD8 killer T-cell function or a little more CD4 helper T-cell you know, dampening function. It, it could go either way, could go- depending on how you... You dial it. That's right, and and uh, that's uh, 
what we do here at Synthorix is change the binding properties of IL-2 to favor one T-cell subpopulation or the other T-cell subpopulation for cancer or autoimmune and without, particularly in the case of cancer, without that uh, vascular leak syndrome that uh, patients experience uh, on Aldous Lucan. And then, of course, we're working on other cytokines as well. Now, you mentioned that word randomly for the pegylation binding. Uh, that means these these polymers will attach at random spots all around the, the cytokine, right? Well, Wait. Uh, that's how it used to be. That's done. how it used to be. In fact, there's I I think there's probably 14 approved FDA approved drugs that employ pegylation technology because it's used to extend the half life. You know, if you think about erythropoietin, for example, you know that these these are are drugs that. People have, I mean, people figured out how to add pegs onto proteins to improve the half-life, but nobody's ever changed, been able to specifically say where in a polypeptide chain I'm going to place that peg in order to not only extend half-life, but change binding properties. Now, extending half-life, of course, that's important because you can get less frequent dosing, less frequent injections, or less frequent visits to the doctor, better product profile. This is back to all your pharmacology stuff <laughs> way back when, right? So there's the, that's useful. But the site-specific conjugation to, uh, is this next level, right, where you can uh, get, as you say, the the half-life, the longer life in the body, the, the less frequent dosing, but also the exact binding property you want, not some random effect over here on the side. That's exactly right. And that also had to be figured out empirically, right? So as you said, this technology platform, very broad-based. Well, how does the company start? Well, they decided to start with cytokines and IL-2, but where do you place that peg? Well, the scientists in the company had to very meticulously walk the novel amino acid around various places in the IL-2 polypeptide. And that meant taking that you know new base pair that Floyd created, putting it in a specific codon in the gene, transforming bacteria, expressing that IL-2 with the novel amino acid, purifying it, pegylating it, and saying, does that change the binding properties? Do you prevent that alpha chain from engaging, which is the chain that's re responsible for immunosuppression and vascular leak? And uh, that, you know, the scientists here, they did this over and over again, like 25 times, does it change the property? No, 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 no. But three times the answer was yes, it did. And that led to the you know, very fast preclinical development led by Marcos Mia, our CSO uh, uh, of Thor 707, and hopefully into the clinic soon. And you make these in E. coli cells, just like any other biologic, That's right? That's right. It's a special strain that Floyd created. Uh, he's published on it, actually, so anybody can read about it in Nature Papers in 2015 and 2017. 
And uh, he um, created this ability not only to have the E. coli replicate with a new base pair, uh, but the ability then to incorporate a novel amino acid during transcription and translation. And he had to um, do some special tweaking in order to make that happen. And importantly, uh, he had to find a transporter that would transport the nucleotides and the deoxynucleotides because cells make them. They don't need to get them from anywhere. Now, all of a sudden, they need to bring them in from the media, and E. coli doesn't do that. So uh, he had to spend a, a number of years, his laboratory, figuring out how to get a transporter. It turns out that chloroplasts, they have to get their DNA imported. Uh, they don't make it. And so it's a, it's a, um, it's a uh, transfer, transporter from an algae. So this is a, 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 an engineered E. coli that's scientifically, it's amazing. And then, of course, we have to have a tRNA that recognizes a codon in the RNA, right? It's got to have a special anticodon. Then you have to have a special tRNA synthetase that charges that tRNA with the novel amino acid. And it's all got to work to now have a, a, a polypeptide chain with a new uh, amino acid there. And then the peg gets attached later? The, yeah, the, the, uh, the novel amino acid, we place a, a dedicated hook in there. That's part of what we do. And that de dedicated hook allows to click on a peg. So it only goes where you place that novel amino acid, doesn't pegylate anyplace else. Back to your point about how did it used to be done, how, how did we used to pegylate? You can pegylate on lysines, uh, you can pegylate at the end terminus, but only there. And, and uh, difficult to really dial in, if you're, if you're pegylating lysines, how do you dial in exactly uh, where and how much of that peg gets, get, gets added? We, we do it very... Uh, uh, it's, it's very measured how we're able to get a, pro, a protein product that has uh, the novel amino acid and a peg. So thinking about this product profile, you've got it, it, it almost ready to go to the clinic uh, later this year, right? Uh, and it, uh, it should enable the half-life that you're looking for with the, the dosing every other week or once a month, something well, like that. Uh, as you said, importantly, what it enables is the expansion of tumor-fighting T effector cells without the immune suppressive activation of T regulatory cells and without activation of, of cells responsible for vascular leak syndrome coupled with convenient dosing. CD8 killer T cells that go after the tumor, not the vasculature. Right, that's right. Well, the, 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 the etiopathology of vascular leak syndrome actually doesn't involve T cells, but that might be another podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Biology is complicated. It yes. sure is. Uh, well, uh, and this would be, uh, I mean, quite a way to... Uh, to cap a career in, in biotech. I mean, if you can look out five to 10 years uh, to have a, 
a practical IL-2 that gets gets you the benefits that we saw way back when with those 7% of patients. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, a whole lot more people could conceivably get it if it doesn't cause the vascular leak. Yeah, you know, uh, I think uh, with my own cancer diagnosis and um, understanding firsthand the limitations of of cancer treatment, you know, uh, definitely I want better better treatments for people diagnosed with cancer, and uh, you know I think that's the that's the culture that we try to have here at Synthorix. Indeed, I, I, actually, after my cancer diagnosis, I've wherever I've gone, you know, I was at, at Cleve Biosciences for a number of years, and I tried to instill that there as well, that what we're doing is important because of the limitations of current treatments. Now, you know uh, that we've made tremendous progress since the 80s, right? And yeah. since I started in this field as a postdoctoral fellow, and uh, and yet, you know, Still today, there's more cancer patients that don't have effective treatments than do, even though we've made tremendous strides. Yeah, yeah. But when you think about the potential, on your more optimistic days, uh, thinking about a re-engineered IL-2, an optimally engineered IL-2, uh, boy, that could go in a lot of different tumor types. Well, it, it's, uh, you know, IL-2 is for primarily for solid tumors where there's huge unmet need. Um, and the, the ability to dial out uh, the toxicity then means that you have the ability to combine it with other things, right? Yeah. We know um, combining it with checkpoint inhibitors makes huge sense, but uh, there's also the ability to increase durability of other cancer treatments, be it PARP inhibitors or, you know, chemotherapy or, you know, radiation. You know, we, we just have, uh, we need to increase durability of response and uh, oftentimes that means we, we should be combining with other agents. We can only do that if the drug that we are developing has a good safety profile. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, you've seen the development of these checkpoints these last few years, and everybody's trying to combine them with something, including the IL-2s. Um, that'll be a whole but set the, of issues for but you. But the th- difference there is that, you know, we know that IL-2 works. That was proven in the 80s. Um, we know the checkpoints work, that, you know, we, we have a vast array of them now. And so these are really validated mechanisms. It's just that we haven't had the optimally tuned or a reprogrammed um, IL-2, which is what Thor 707 is providing. The other things that are all out there that people are trying to combine with, many of them have unproven mechanisms of action. So it's, it's important that we do that too, because we need to understand, you know, what are the the pathways that uh, can be can help patients that we haven't tested yet. Well, and these all these ought to be complementary mechanisms. Like if you release the brakes, if you if you pull back that dampening mechanism that the checkpoints do, and, and, then, and then you and you press on the gas with that, something that unleashes CD8 killer T cells at the tumor, well, that should be you know the now, chocolate and peter butter combination. Now you know <laughs> why I say I'm riding a big wave every time I come to work. <laughs> Great point to wrap up. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining. Joining me today on the long run. Yeah, it's been fun, Luke. Thanks a lot. 
Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.